Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27. And let's not lose sight of where we're at in the story of Mark's Gospel. We're in the city of Jerusalem, and it's the final week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And the tension between Jesus and the Jerusalem leadership is mounting. In fact, in our last recording, we saw how the Jerusalem leadership challenged Jesus on where he got his authority. And in response to that, Jesus told a parable that you can read about in Mark 12, 1 through 12, that is a direct warning and challenge to the Jerusalem leadership. It used the well-known imagery for Israel of a vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard represents God. And what Jesus does through that parable is he portrays the Jerusalem leadership of his day as greedy and self-serving and violent. They're like tenant farmers who want the farm for themselves, so much so that they actually kill the owner of the vineyard's son so that they can seize the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus tells that parable, and the Jerusalem leadership got the point. So that's the context of the section we're going to look at in this recording. Now what Mark does here is he gives us just several quick snapshots of various other challenges from different power groups in Jerusalem. The first one comes from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Look at verse 13. Then they sent, notice that, they, presumably the chief priests and some of the real power brokers in Jerusalem, sent some other people to say, you go test them out. So they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now, if you recall back, clear back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where the Herodians first showed up. We talked a little bit about them there, but the Herodians were supporters of the Herod dynasty, beginning with Herod the Great, now down through his sons and grandsons, right? And Interestingly enough, the Pharisees, their goal is to be pure and holy, and they normally wouldn't have aligned themselves with the Herodians, but they both have this common enemy in Jesus, and so now they're joined together, and their goal is to trap him in something he says. And they came to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and you don't care about what anyone thinks, for you're not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Now remember, they are coming to trap him, but they are pretending here to be honest and good-hearted. In other words, this is simply empty flattery. They got to butter him up a little bit before they ask him their question. And so they do. With empty flattery, they prepare him for the question. Here's the question. Is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Are we to pay or not to pay? Now, this refers to a tax that was paid directly to Rome, the poll tax, and it was a hot-button issue in Jesus' day. It grows out of the political situation. Could one pay taxes to Rome without dishonoring God? That's what really lies behind this question. Or was the very task, the very act of paying taxes to support Roman occupation, the Roman military, along with Roman idolatry, with coins bearing Caesar's image and proclaiming him as the son of God, wasn't that in and of itself like disloyal to Yahweh? And that's the background behind their question. And their trick question really seems to put Jesus in a difficult spot. On one hand, 
if he speaks in favor of paying the tax, well, most of the general populace is so overtaxed and so despises the Roman that that would put him really at odds with the crowd and he might lose some face and lose some popular appeal. On the other hand, if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, well, that amounts to speaking against Rome and Roman power, and that could be construed as an act of revolt. In fact, plenty of tax revolts have actually occurred in Israel in this time period. Some have been put down with brutal force by the Romans. So, whatever answer Jesus gives puts him in really a difficult spot. How's he going to get out of this one? Well, here's how. Look at what Mark says. But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, knowing they're, they're really two-faced and they're, they're not really good-hearted about this, knowing they're trying to trick him, knowing all of that, Jesus said to them, why are you testing me? He knows exactly what they're up to. Then he says, bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus knows their game and he's not going to give them anything that they can accuse him on or hand him over to the Roman governor. In fact, he puts them actually on the defensive and kind of in a compromising position right from the start when he says, show me a denarius, show me a denarius, which they then produce which means they have some denarii on them. A denarius was a Roman coin. It was the coin that was used to pay this particular tax. And such coins would bear the image of the emperor. In this time period, the most likely image on it, unless it was an older coin, was the image of the emperor Tiberius. And so here we're going to have a denarius with a picture, an image of Tiberius Caesar on it. And not only that, it would have the blasphemous inscription on it that proclaimed Tiberius as the son of God. And so he asked them to show him a denarius and they produce it, which means, oh, oh, so you, you're carrying around those supposedly despicable Roman coins on you, are you? And then he makes them verbally acknowledge whose image is on the coin. And they have to say Caesar's. And then Jesus ends his reply with a challenge. Jesus said to them, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, that word pay is literally actually give back. That is, give back that stuff to where it came from. Why carry Caesar's image and Caesar's coin in your pockets? Just give it back to them. And what's more, give back to God the things that are God's, like the temple and the authority and their power and wealth, and most specifically, themselves. Because like that coin, they bear God's image. Just as that coin bears Caesar's image, they've been stamped by God and bear his image. And so everything they are is God's. They should give themselves back to him. And in the preceding parable, in verses 1 through 12, the parable of the vine growers, right? They wanted the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus knows what's really going on here with the Jerusalem leadership. And really what he's doing is he calls them out and tells them to quit taking for themselves what actually belongs to God. It's a brilliant response, and he slides right out of their trap. And so Mark records that they were utterly amazed at him. They thought they had him in a difficult spot, and he walks away, and all he's done is really called them to be more loyal to God than they ever imagined, and he's given them nothing that they can accuse him on. 
Now, before we leave this snapshot and look at the next one, let me just offer a little bit of reflection here. This text, this little episode, has been taken to affirm the validity of paying taxes. And I suppose, in a certain sense, it does that. But it doesn't do that by saying that Caesar is legitimate or that his coinage is legitimate. It actually affirms a very limited scope and scale of Caesar's rule. It really calls us to give back to him, give back to the government what belongs to him, what has his image on it, in their case, Caesar's, right? The apostles affirmed this. They affirmed in their later writings, their letters, that the governing authority was delegated from God. And in that sense, as a delegated authority from God, the government deserves honor and respect and prayer. Following Jesus' lead, they would say that if that involves paying taxes, then do it. Just give back to them what actually belongs to them. But at the same time, remember that God's kingdom, his reign and rule and his authority is supreme. It's over all. God's claim is far more far-reaching than any other sovereign, right? And so give to God whatever belongs to him, which is, in fact, everything. Everything belongs to God in the long run, and especially yourself, because you have been stamped with God's image. You belong to him, and so give that back to God. That's ultimately the point Jesus is making here. All right, now, the questions to trap Jesus continue. Up next, some Sadducees. If you listen to the background to the Gospels recording, you know that the Sadducees were a group of wealthy priests. They viewed only the first five books of the Hebrew Bible as authoritative scripture, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as a result, they rejected what they considered to be a novel idea, the idea of the Pharisees of the resurrection. Well, these Sadducees in this episode come to Jesus and pose a scenario, sort of like a story question, that they think shows how silly and illogical the resurrection is. Here's the way it unfolds. Verse 18. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and doesn't leave a child, his brother is to marry the wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, this scenario is going to be based on this law that these Sadducees highlight here in verse 19. And that law can originally be found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. The purpose of the law, even though it sounds weird to our ears, in its original Old Testament cultural context, the purpose of the law was twofold. First, it, it was to preserve the brother's line and to protect the family land. That was like critical. That was their livelihood. This was everything. And so you needed to preserve the line and the land. At the same time, the law also served to provide a protection to the woman from becoming completely destitute and defenseless. So that's what the law was originally about. Now, these Pharisees come, and based on that law, they pose this hypothetical story question that they believe shows how illogical the resurrection is. Here's their question, verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The, the second one married her. He died, leaving no children. And the third likewise. And so the seven together left no children. So all seven of these brothers did what the law said, they took this wife, they all died without children, and then, last of all, the woman also died. 
There's the story. Here's the question, verse 23. In the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? For each of the seven had her as his wife. And in their mind, this just shows how silly and illogical the resurrection is. Notice when they say in the resurrection there in verse 23. In other words, in the resurrection time period. That is on earth after the restoration of all things and in that period of resurrection when all things are made new and people are going to live forever. This novel idea in their mind that the Pharisees uh, propose, well, in that time period, whose wife will she be? See, it's silly and it's illogical. That's their thinking. Now, here's Jesus' response in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God? Which is a little bit ironic. These are Sadducees. They're priests. They're uh, leadership, right? They're, they know the scriptures. At least they're supposed to. And Jesus is like, you don't really know God's power. You don't really know the scriptures. And then Jesus is going to give some specific responses. And in fact, his response is going to have two parts. Part one is that there's no marriage in the resurrection. In that time period, in the restoration of all things, there's no marriage. Notice verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, there's going to be no new marriages. There's not going to be continuing marriages, but they are like angels in heaven. And Jesus' point is, is that their premise is flawed. They assume that life in that resurrection period will be the same as life on this present earth. And that means it'll include marriage. But Jesus says it won't. Marriage will not be extended into that age, nor will there be any new marriages there. It's a totally different kind of life in a totally different kind of physical world with a totally different kind of physical nature that doesn't involve marriage. And notice that he says, but they are like angels. That doesn't mean human beings in the resurrection become angels. That is a complete misunderstanding. That's not his point. His point is they're like angels in that they do not marry. In other words, angels don't marry, and in the resurrection, humans won't marry. So there's no marriage in the resurrection. Your premise is flawed. That's part one. Part two is this. Even in the five books of Moses, the only books that the Sadducees recognized as authoritative, even those books assume life beyond the grave. Look what he says, verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush? This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. That's what he's going to quote. And again, this is a little bit ironic. This is like one of the most famous stories in all of the Hebrew scriptures. As priests and leaders, they would know these scriptures. He's quoting from the book of Moses, right? book of Exodus, one of the books that they uh, recognize as authoritative. So he's going to deal with them on their terms. And he quotes this passage from Exodus chapter 3. Have you not read, he says, how God spoke to him, Moses, at the burning bush, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Now, what's Jesus' point? Well, his point is that God is still described as their God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's described as 
presently their God, and those who no longer exist after they have died, which is what the Sadducees believe, that there was no life after death. And so if you die, that's it. It's over. So obviously there's not going to be a resurrection because you're already gone. Well, those who no longer exist would have no God. Jesus isn't saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have already experienced the resurrection. What he is saying is that they are alive in God's presence, and thus God can describe himself as currently being their God. But they're waiting for their resurrection. And that's what the Sadducees denied, that there was any life beyond the grave, so there was certainly no resurrection. And so, with that, Jesus has effectively responded to their challenge, showing them that, look, God's power can raise people from the dead, and it'll be a totally different kind of life. And the scriptures, even the very scriptures that you only recognize, your limited scriptures, even they assume life after death and point in the direction of, therefore, the resurrection. Now, before we leave this little snapshot, this story, again, just just a little reflection that's really important for us is that that's our ultimate hope, is resurrection. And Jesus here affirms it. He affirms both life after death, but ultimately the resurrection. And it's resurrection that is the ultimate hope of God's people. It's not just to die and go to heaven when you die, right? It's resurrection, resurrection of the body, that there will be a resurrection time period that includes a physical life of some sort. And the whole of the New Testament points in that direction. And we can have complete assurance of it, not only because of Jesus' words here, affirming the resurrection, but primarily because Jesus himself already rose from the dead. And so we know that resurrection is where we're heading. It's our destiny. And we know God's power that it can happen because God's power was demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead. Hey, it's John, and the goal of the listener's commentary is to provide clear, down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life to help us understand the scriptures so that we can follow Jesus right in the midst of our everyday life. It's what I like to call blue jeans theology. And the listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of a whole bunch of folks just like you. So thank you for your support, both financially and through prayer. And if you want to join the team of supporters, there's a link down in the notes below where you can set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation. Thanks so much for your support.